it's better for me to ask the dumb questions now and figure it out than costing me millions of dollars later. It's more important to ask the right questions than to have all the right answers. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Jason Shao. Jason is a real estate developer and media post in the Bay Area. He'll be telling us how he got into the development space, as well as some major tips on what to do if you want to get started. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Jason, thanks for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me. Super excited to be on the show. I've been listening to your podcast as well. So my name is Jason Shao. I'm a developer. I have a small team that help us with our construction projects. And I also have another small team that helps folks buy, sell and invest in real estate or acquire and dispose our assets as well. I got into real estate, I think, I joke with people that I, I read Bridge That Poor Dad too early. I read it in high school, I think. So I started house hacking before house hacking was a term in college. I got a two-bedroom condo. My sister and I lived in it for one year. And then after she moved out, I ran out to my friends and cover all my expenses with some beer money left over, basically. And, you know, we dabbled here and there. We picked up a few units in the in foreclosed units in the downturn. And then what we're mostly known for now is in development. And I kind of got into that by mistake or by accident. My father bought a duplex that can be redeveloped into three units, sort of PUD or detached condo kind of style. And it was not going well. And I basically told myself, well, I'll be damned if we were going to lose money on this deal. So I stepped in and really just learned the hard way by going to the planning department and building and safety department super early in the morning at 7, 7.30 in the morning kind of thing, asking a lot of other contractors or friends that are at least somewhat familiar with this this space, read as much as I could online. There's some stuff on bigger pockets, but not it's not a focus for them, I would say. Uh, Urban Land Institute's been pretty helpful as well with their publications or some of the stuff that they some of the webinars and programs that they have. But really, you know, it was just sort of piecemeal together and we managed to to exit that at okay. <clears throat> and after we finished with that, I had some time to sort of reflect and debrief a little bit and really felt like it I what I've learned is is hard to come by. It's not something everybody knows and it was challenging but it was still fun as well. And we decided to do more and more of these kind of projects, you know, usually building three, four, five, six homes at a time. Our biggest project right now is actually a 16 home detached condo uh, with a food hall next to it. And then we also have a six unit small lot subdivision in Silver Lake, which is a really cool, hip, trendy neighborhood in Los Angeles. And then we're also working on a 55 unit apartment in Qualify Opportunity Zone down in San Pedro as well. Wait, San Pedro Square in San Jose? No, no, this is down in San Pedro in SoCal next to... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, by SpaceX. Yeah, not, not San Pedro. Okay, got it. Sorry. So like near Hawthorne. 
Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, how long have you been doing development for? It's been about seven or eight years, I think, is when we first acquired the the, the property that my dad was struggling with. What were some of like the mistakes that he was doing that was causing him to be scared or potentially lose money? You know, everybody sort of stumbles the first time around kind of thing, anything new. And first was probably just the lack of knowledge. And then the second part was really, I would say, more about not vetting and hiring the right person. He he had a friend that was helping him. He has some good background, but he really, at the end of the day, he's a surveyor. He is not a land developer. He's, he doesn't do entitlement kind of things. So, you know, he was getting architects too that doesn't have the best experience. And especially with, with dealing with cities or bureaucracies or different agencies, there's definitely some value for people that are familiar with the certain lo- locale. Like, for example, our property was in the county of Los Angeles, which is even much bigger, complicated and messy kind of thing. So sometimes people that have been through it or they work in those kind of offices before they can help you navigate that a lot better. So that was ultimately the core of what we were struggling with, like trusting the right people and the Asian culture too, where a lot of times you want to save face or you want, you know, you don't want to fire somebody because you, you're worried about the relationship, which is, you know, it has its place. Just, you know, when there's a lot of money on the line though, you kind of have to do what you got to do sometimes. It's true. Did you ever flip houses before or was like this development project your first foray into this like remodeling and reconstruction business? Yeah, in terms of active investment, this is, I suppose, I'm very comfortable of jumping in the deep end of the pool with both feet kind of thing. I never flip homes or anything like that. And it wasn't necessarily by choice, like I was saying. But again, I think in other things I've done in my life that gives me the, the confidence, the ability to just, in, in essence, figure it out and solve, identify the problem and figure out the solutions and go from there and really learn to have a way to compress the learning curve. So what are some of those things that you did to compress your learning curve? A lot a lot of things you do, it's, you have to do it on your own. And for me, my learning style is a mix of, you know, I try to read as much as I can and learn as much as I can. And then I find the subject matter experts to almost have like an office hour like you would in, in college, right? And just have very poignant and targeted questions for them and go, hey, I'm struggling with this. What should I do with this? And if I can, I try to get multiple opinions as well, because sometimes you talk to one person and they might know what they're talking about, or it only applies to their state or their market. But that's, you know, for example, I know a builder in Texas, but some of the stuff that what she does doesn't really apply to California. That's just not how the, how the game's played here. That's my learning style and that works for me. And I was able to compress the learning that way to really quickly figure out what I need to do. So basically, you just do your project. When you encounter problems, you find out, I guess you figure out a list of questions you want to ask these subject matter experts. You find those people and you ask them straight up, hey, I have this exact problem. What should I do? Yeah, exactly. I think I give the advice to some people too that, you know, having got done an MBA, I think a lot of times people worry about asking the dumb questions or they feel like they need to have all the answers. And yeah, in certain capacities, that's definitely the case. But for me, I was fine and comfortable asking the dumb, dumb questions. I was new to it. And I fully admit that I don't know anything. I just looked at it as it's better for me to ask the dumb questions now and figure it out 
instead, you know, costing me millions of dollars later kind of thing. So I think it's, it's more important to ask the right questions than to have all the right answers, because the quality of your questions will lead to the quality answers that you're looking for. Now, I know you said you haven't done flips yourself, but I'm sure you know a lot of flippers. What are some of the differences between being a developer versus being just a flipper? Yeah, so I mean, the difference between developer and flipper, I've never flipped before, but I think there's just a lot more complexities, a lot more moving parts to manage. And there's usually probably an extra zero at the end kind of thing. So for flipper, you probably just need a GC and maybe occasionally check with a structural engineer if you can take down a wall or open up a wall. And for us, there's a lot more parts about geotags and you want to see if the soil, if there's any problems with the soil, you want to see where the fault line is, if you can actually build what you want to build there. Civil engineering on the water filtration and, and all these, uh, all these other matters, survey maps. And then obviously working with architects and MEPs on where you're going to lay your water, your plumbing and your HVACs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, from a public agency or, you know, community outreach aspect as well, you can probably get a regular home. You can probably get it done in a year or two if everything's to the code. You don't need to have any kind of variance versus flipping. You're probably out three, four, five, six months. Uh, hopefully, you know, no more than six months kind of kind of timeline. And, um, you know, flipping, you might need to get a permit. But for us, depending on the scope of the the size of the project or complexity, you know, often we have to go to public hearings with the, the planning commission or neighborhood councils or city councils. And that could easily, you know, become a year or two just to get the entitlement and then another year or two to build it out kind of kind of timeline. Is it worth it to go through all this trouble to develop? Like what if you took all that energy and just flipped a bunch of homes? So I actually got into an argument with, well, not argument, but it was a you know it was a poignant debate with another flipper where he came up to me and he goes you know I share with my numbers and he goes I don't like your numbers I go what's wrong with my numbers there that that you know I wasn't lying or anything I thought that's what he meant he goes no because I I can go flip houses and you know I can flip six houses and make a lot more money than you do which my counterpoint to that is yeah that's true but you spend way more energy on trying to find the deals, I just have to do one versus you might have to do 20 deals to make the same amount of money. And it's not just about the money either. I think for what we do, you know, you you are really thinking much long term and how you can make an impact in the community and transform the community instead of sort of just in and out and get up and leave kind of thing. It is a lot of work, but I think overall, it, it's, it's a personal thing I, from my conversation with other flipper friends or other developers, it's not a fair comparison in my opinion, but it's its pretty different. Yeah, I mean, it's a scale thing. And I think Warren Buffett was saying that he would buy, he would probably buy single family homes if there was a way to buy a huge amount, like a huge portfolio at once, but there's no way to buy it really, like a huge portfolio at once. And if you have like a billion dollars, you're not just going to buy a bunch of single family homes if they're like, you know, hundred grand each, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just the, the scale is definitely different, right? And 
with flipping, you're sort of just you're chasing deals, or looking at things all all the time, constantly at different places, and you know you might be underwriting ten deals to get one, and I'm underwriting the same amount to do one deal, and I mean it's hard to say the precise amount of time that's invested, but I would like to say that the ROI on my time is a lot higher as a developer than a flipper. And so what is your goal? Like, are you trying to become next, like, you know, Donald Trump minus a political agenda? <laughs> are you trying to do like big skyscraper high rises or like, what's your, what's your plan in the future? Yeah, my goal, it's, I've, you know, I had to reflect a little bit after we just had our baby. I think for my goal, you know, the qualitative side of it is to continue to uh, find good and interesting deals and um, help and transform communities. You know, we want to be doing interesting projects and providing returns to our investors. My personal goal on a on a quantitative side, before my time is done on this earth, I would like to build a thousand units, and then I want to hit a million dollars in passive income. A million dollars passive income a year, right? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Now, what is your buying criteria when you're looking at a development project? Like if I'm new and I am given a deal by a broker, how do I know if this is a good deal or a bad deal? Yeah, it's it's different depending on sort of what asset class we're looking at. So if we're just talking about single family homes or, you know, one or a couple of homes, it's the criteria has kind of shifted as the market got more competitive. And even though now lately we kind of see things are plateauing a little bit. I used to say that usually at the back of the, the bar knocking level, I used to say I want to make 30% on, on a house, on a development project, on a simple one. With things being more competitive, you know, I was, I was actually okay with say like 25% sometimes. So that, you know, essentially about 30% of my costs will go to the land, about 30% um, will go to the construction, hard, so, hard and soft costs in terms of, you know, the architects, permit fees, labor, material, and all that. And then, you know, I got about 10% that I'm budgeting for my closing, my commissions, and any kind of contingencies, you know, things that my might go wrong and then that 30 that 30 percent that's left over that's ideally what would be my my profit um for bigger projects as we're growing and expanding and looking at to multifamilies or other more commercial level class my criteria essentially is that if i'm building it and i'm investing all this time and money into it at the end of the day, I want my cap rate, which is basically your net operating income depend, divided by your cost. I want to be 1% over the prevailing market cap rate. So for example, if I can build a 50 unit apartment and the market is a five cap, I want to calculate to where all my costs comes in. After I factor in all my costs, I'm performing at a six cap or higher. If I can't hit a six cap, it's really not worth the risk and the time and the money, in my opinion. When you talk about 30%, is that 30% of the final sales price? Do you want 30% of that as your profit? Or is it 30% of the money you put in? Uh, 30% of the of the ARD. Wow. So for, uh, let's say, a $5 million project, you want 1.5 of that to be profit. Yeah, I mean, and that um, that's not realistic in this market right now. You know, I think uh, definitely if you bought right and your land value was a lot lower, say if you bought in the 20, 
2010, 2011 timeframe, or maybe even uh, up to 2013, you probably were still able to hit those kind of numbers. But I know a lot of other developers too, they have to, they had to relax their criteria recently. I mean, even for flipping homes, people are usually trying to just get like 10% of ARVS profit. So, hey, 30% is amazing if you're able to get that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, flipping definitely because of the time and the money involved, right? I think the the adjusted risk is, is lower. But if I'm going to be, be much more involved, I definitely need to have enough meat on the bones in case the market shifts or something goes sideways or just really to account for the risk that I'm taking on. So you want to talk about your project, the one that you have where it's like 14 different units of residential, but you also have that food hall nearby? That's an exciting project for us. You know, we came across this property that a developer used to own it. It was a, it's a, almost a 19,000 square foot brick warehouse that Wonder Bread used to own. And their plan was to just tear it down and put more condos on it kind of thing. But in order to do that, it requires a specific plan that the city was working on putting in place. And they kind of just ran out of patience on it. So we were looking at this where, you know, we I travel quite a bit. And I've always liked the concept of Chelsea Market or Ponzi City Market um, or the San Pedro Square Market in San Jose kind of thing. And we were tinkering or playing around with the idea of putting a food hall here. But, you know, even for me as, a, as coming from a marketing background, I always like to test and validate the idea. And so we went out, we got a broker and we were we had a package together to to pitch different tenants. And, you know, throughout the process, we were also getting feedbacks from the local steering committee that was sort of guiding or as a public feedback mechanism for this specific com, uh, specific plan for the city. And everybody's been telling us, yeah, we would love to have a place to hang out or more food and dining options or a place to to grab a drink. And in fact, the words they use in the steering, steering committee was they would like to see a brew pub. And what I asked them was, well, okay, well, what if I can get you the beer and the food, but they come from a different vendor? And, you know, it's not going to be like a BJ's, which who happens to be like two, three miles down the road, down the road already anyway. And they say, yeah, no, we don't care. Like, we just we just want a place to hang out. We're tired of going to Pasadena's or other places, kind of thing like that. And we went out. We had a broker that was pitching these deals for us. And then it got to a place where I was just I just wanted to try something different as well. I started cold calling and cold emailing tenants as well. And we were able to land one of the biggest independent craft brewer in Los Angeles, small city. And their owner just really fell in love and believe in our vision as well in turning this beloved, really um, just beautiful brick warehouse with uh, these wood trellis in the roof or the barrel trust roof as well. And they signed on and from there on, usually, you know, with commercial deals like this, once you have an anchor, the conversation becomes a lot easier too. So we were able to sign the remaining 10 tenants and, you know, they range from burger to seafood to kebab or, you know, taco and a coffee guy, those kind of things. And we have, uh, we have an ice cream vendor as well to become a really, what we are hoping to be, a, I'm not hoping, we know it will be the, a very vibrant food hall with uh, a lot of different dining options and hangout spaces where people sit. 
And next to it, we're planning to put in 16 homes that um, to support the to support the food hall, and also just you know, I think that's what's appropriate and a variety of housing options for the neighborhood. Um, they're ranging about you know they're about 14 or 1600 square feet, depending on which which plant types we're talking about. Um, and it will be affordable, kind of the average uh, price point for that market as well. So you're basically creating a food hall, kind of like San Pedro Square and with the Anaheim Packing District? Yep, yep. Okay. I mean, those things are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there are, people of all ages love going to those kind of places. I mean, we'll be a little bit smaller, though. Anaheim Packing House is a much bigger project. It's, I think they're 40,000 square foot plus, and they benefit from a grand vision that the city of Anaheim has to transform the area with the housing density to support it kind of thing. Um, we're a little bit more smaller. The food hall space, um, there's been more regional food halls coming up. And in general, I think people are trying to keep it to below 20,000 because otherwise if you have too many vendors and you don't have the population density or the traffic to support it, the, the, the tenants in there could end up suffering or not getting the same kind of benefits or returns that they're looking for. Yep. Totally got it. Now let's talk about the deal itself. So remind me again, you found this deal through an agent? We found this on LoopNet. So for everybody that says LoopNet is where good deals go to die, that is not true. Granted, we had to think a little bit creatively on this one to, um, you know, to to reposition the building and the, and the asset. And, um, you know, we, we were also using private money. So we had a, we we could afford to be a little bit more patient and working with the city to to get this thing finalized to allow our our vision to come to life. And when you're doing your analysis in the first place, I'm sure you have a lot of questions in your mind, a lot of unknown factors. Like, how did you even decide to create? Oh, I'm going to put some houses on this side. I'm going to create a food court on this side, and these are the numbers that are going to work out? Like, how are you doing this in all of your analysis if you've never done a food court before? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, for the food hall, it, our numbers definitely, our performa went through a couple iterations. So, you know, I think the first thing I look at actually is not about just about the numbers. It's about the market and what um, what the neighborhood needs. You know, what do what are the customers, or in, the, in this case, the local residents, what are they looking for? Um, so once we felt comfortable about the food hall concept, yeah, we started digging into the numbers. Okay. How much would it cost to fix up a space versus the site works and all the other utilities and, um, you know, infrastructure that we have to put in. And, um, what had happened though was our numbers actually, I mean, I, we have enough information or we know we're familiar enough with how to build a restaurant. And we're based off of the numbers on that. And then um, some of the other numbers came back a lot higher. But what had happened too was our the rent we were able to get was also a lot higher. I think in the area, um, you know, we the the market rate for retail is maybe like 125 or 135 or square foot. We were initially underwriting it at 250. Um, but we were actually able to even double that. So we, we almost quadrupled the initial, the market, uh, market retail rate rental. Yeah. Rental comps for it. Wait, say that one more time. Cause I heard, I heard $2 and one twenty five, and I got confused there. 
Yeah, so the market rental comp for retail is about 125 or 135. Mm-hmm. And when we were looking at this, we were going to, um, so that number usually in court in, includes tenant improvement, right, or other um, benefits or, you know, they, they might be including a triple net on top of that. So basically, we were looking at this where, okay, if a tenant comes in, what's the most they think, I, we think they would be comfortable paying. And for for anybody that might be interested, so for for a food guy or you know for general retail your rent they generally people are trying to keep it or you know it'll come out average on average about six to eight percent of your overall gross gross revenue so we kind of looked at how much people might be comfortable paying and then sort of backing in into the dollar per square foot figure and we were underwriting at about 250 um, and what had happened actually was we actually, when we pitched it, we were actually pitching even double that just in the initial stages. And people, some people look at the number as high, but once they wrap it there around their number and go, oh, actually, we're shifting the CapEx to an OpEx for people similar to, say, cloud computing or AWS, right? Like instead of having to buy all these computers or building, spending dollars to build out your space, we're shifting that into an OPEX, your ongoing monthly rent. So we're actually able to double even what we were underwriting to about $5 a square foot or more. I see. So now they're not paying the triple net. They're not improving the property because you guys already approved it for them. So they're just paying rent to you guys, and that's about yeah, it. Yeah, so they're they don't get a TI allowance, and they don't have to pay for to build out the space or anything like that. They still, there's the tenants are still responsible for their equipments and uh, furnitures and all that. Um, and on top of that, there is a lot a small portion of um, of what's called CAM charges or common area maintenance charge. So that's for you know the landscaping or for somebody to come in to clean the toilets or bust the tables. Um, and you know, some kind of, uh, the, the insurance and property tax for the properties, those kind of things. We essentially prorate that depending on how big of a space the tenant has. And that comes out to be about, we're budgeting about dollar 25, uh, a square foot for the tenants. So we're, we're making it very turnkey that people just have to order their equipment, ship it to, or ship them to the site and, you know, our contractor will help them connect it. And, you know, there are definitely some newer tenants or sorry, newer businesses. I can tell from our conversation with them, they just struggle to wrap their head around this higher number. They're, you know, to them, they're going, you're charging me four times as much as what everybody else is charging WTF. And the tenants that we end up signing, they, they, they all have two, three, four, or many, many more locations. And we pitch this to them or share this with them. And they go, oh, I don't have to deal with the build outs and the permits and the building departments and health department. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, like, because it comes out to be about three, three, four thousand dollars a month for these tenants. And the value that we're bringing and adding to to them that, you know, a lot of these guys, they get into the food business because they're passionate about food. They want to be in the kitchen. They don't want to be dealing with the contractors and the architects. They don't care about any of that. Yeah, that's very true. So when you guys are getting outside vendor help, like contractors and designers, how do you even choose somebody to do that? We, we go by referrals most of the time. You know, so <clears throat> this is one of the things you, 
uh, once you get into business, whether it's development or anything, I think you will learn quickly who's good at doing what. And if you need something, you usually try to go to go to go to people for referrals first. And then if we really need to, maybe, you know, you'll go on, I, I don't know, go on the Internet or sometimes if I really need a if I'm really in a crunch, too, I'll go through the permit records. Um, a lot of times people submit plans and they have the architect information or civil engineers information on there who who drafted this and submit it. And if I see somebody's a firm's name in the in the permit records like two, three, four times, hey, you know, good chance they probably know what they're doing or they're at least familiar with the city versus some some schmuck out there that's never dealt with the city kind of thing. So we go by referrals first, first and foremost, you know, A's refer A's and B's refer B's and C's kind of thing. And that's, you know, usually worked out really well for us. And that's the same with contractors, right? You just use all referrals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, our broker that we end up uh, end up using that essentially I end up pitching a lot of these deals and she helps me with the paperwork and kind of bring them back, bring them through the finish line. She works with much bigger developers like Vernon Ward, and he, she used to work for the Irvine Company and for Rick Caruso, who built the Grove in LA kind of thing. So she she knows a lot of the other contractors that worked on other projects. So she gave me maybe four or five names, and I reached out to these contractors, and then um, plus one or two other ones I knew, and you know we were able to get back three or four proposals and just able to compare and. Um, compare both the numbers and sort of who we think has the right experience and background and the team to help us execute this on time and on budget. So you're saying you're going through permits to look up architects. Are you able Mm -hmm. to do all that online or do you actually go into the city to pull up permits? It depends. Most cities, I think, you know, there's some kind of online system that they're not very user friendly because cities don't care about UI, UX kind of things. But once you're able to find it, like a lot of this is, you know, it's public information. And also, I remember seeing the drawings for your proposed plans, right? And I noticed there's like very few parking at the food hall. So I was wondering, how are you expecting people to get there? I mean, parking is always a, a hot topic for both the public officials and the residents. So uh, for the parking for our project, essentially, what in the beginning phases, you know, the planning department are trying to decide what kind of guidance to give us. Restaurants are supposed to be 10 to 1,000, and then traditional retail is 4 to 1,000. And for us, you know, let's say it's 18, 19,000 square foot building, but not all this kitchen, like because there's a lot of overlap. It's not a traditional product that can just be fit into somebody's zoning code kind of thing, but, you know, we had to logic and use common sense throughout it because our common seating area is so there's so much overlap so we were looking at really more the overall capacity or how many butts and seats kind of thing um and also because the tenants they kind of you know they're they occupy different time of day or different different audience for for example in the morning people are not going to be going to the brewery although some people might be that's you know they need professional help but (laughs) <laughs> you know we're talking in the morning mostly the, the coffee guy or we have a bagel guy you know people going for breakfast and then there's going to be a lunch crowd 
Um, but in the, in, the, in the afternoon, right, like our, our bagel and our coffee guy, they're not going to get the traffic anymore because, I mean, sure, somebody can use a coffee pick-me-up, but they're most likely not going to be drinking a coffee at 8, eight, eight o'clock at night kind of thing. So, yeah, we had some pretty serious discussions with the city on this. The initial guidance they gave us was four to 1,000, and that's what we were working off of. There was a case to be like somebody wanted to make a case that we need more parking. So I basically just did my own analysis. I went out to all the different, I mean, if I can physically visit comparable food halls, I did. If not, I pulled up the satellite pictures for other food halls across the country, more neighborhood style kind of food hall. And I counted how much square foot their building is. And I literally just count one by one how many parking spaces that they provided. And on average, it actually came out to be about 2.5. So the city did come to us and go, you know, throughout the process, we had a new city planner. And he said, you guys need to provide us 40 more parking spaces. And I was not happy. I did my analysis and I came back. I go, actually, by this calculation, you owe us 40 parking spaces. So that's kind of how we we analyze and, you know, plan for the appropriate amount of parking. Okay. So wait, he comes back and says, you need 40 more spaces. I'm kind of confused. You said four to a thousand. Does that mean four parking spaces to a thousand? Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm kind of using, or I'm sure shorthanding or using some of the uh, shortcut terms kind of thing. So essentially, most, I mean, every every city is a little bit different, but for the most part, cities require traditional retail four th- four parking spaces per a thousand square foot, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, okay, got it. That's what I meant by four to a thousand. But restaurants, they're it's like a production right line, right? Like you, they have to plan for the max capacity. So for restaurants, a good restaurant. Um, you know, what if it gets so busy, say, I don't know what would be a good one, like a Din Tai Fon or, or, you know, Orange Robin kind of thing. They're looking at this peak capacity. So they, most of the codes are saying 10 parking spaces per a thousand square foot of retail, or, of retail or restaurant space. The thing is, you know, food hall is kind of a new, I mean, it's not so new anymore, but still very relatively new concept. It doesn't fit in the traditional building or zoning code that's been around a hundred years because it's a new thing right so even though we have all these space there's not the capacity for people and the cars that come with the people are not the same traditional ratio so you know we were just working through through the city with you know the proper thought logic and um precedents and other examples that we can utilize to to come up with the appropriate space or the appropriate number of the parking and i think um i'm actually just looking at it too <laughs> the the drawing that you probably seen it's truncated because it didn't fit on a powerpoint i think yeah like i'm looking at the drawing now where it probably only show like 15 20 parking spaces we actually plan for 70 plus yeah i'm like how are you gonna fill these people in there yeah and so the rest of it is parking right and parking is not visually that interesting in a, in a presentation so i truncated that just so i can enlarge the actual food hall space okay because i was like okay maybe there's no parking because it's a brewery right you don't want people to drive drunk and stuff so maybe everyone's an uber there 
Yeah, yeah, I got you. I mean, and that, and you know, it is a very important variable for when you're planning a project, whether whether it's a fuha or mixed use or apartment, right? Like, there's always going to be discussions, and even you think it's enough when you go to these neighborhood hearings or council hearings, they always say, "No, you need more parking. You need more parking." It's definitely a much discussed part of the process. And what was the final resolution again? You got to two point five per thousand. No, we, I said, hey, you know, I'm I'm looking at these other examples. The average is actually two point five. So, like, you should actually lower your parking requirement. And obviously, they're not going to budge. So we stick with four to a thousand because ultimately, too, sure, like if we could put in more parking, we would. But you know, we were planning all these residential development, and literally, I told the new city planner, hey, I mean. I don't, I don't see the justification for it. Just because, you, just because you want something doesn't mean it makes sense. And you guys gave us the direction four per thousand all along. If you want, if you now come in and tell me I need to plan for ten per thousand, it will kill the project. I'm not kidding with you. And you know the cake's already baked. I can't scrape off the frostings and the the fillings anymore. Like. I wasn't trying to like macho it through or force force it through. Like it was thought with evidence, with analysis, with data to support it. Like data is on. It's not political. Like I just I just showed them the the examples. So when is your project gonna finish? When can we start visiting it and hanging out? <laughs> uh, it's we're planning to get it done by the early or mid November. There's still a lot of variables, obviously, um, with development, there's um, a lot of times, there are things that that come up, but we, we've cleared the city's hurdle right now, we have the contractor um, getting ready to mobilize. So it's just a matter of kind of how quickly they can get it done. But you know, we're, um, we're hearing kind of a four month build out, We'll probably budget for five. If, if if there's a couple of things that go our way, we might be able to get it done quicker than that. Actually, so it hasn't been constructed yet. So th- for the construction, our plan because of the permit approval process, we actually started the outside and the structural upgrades and some of the uh, site work. And our plan was to while we we're working on that, we would go get the interior tenant improvement permitted. And, you know, we kind of just hit some roadblocks there where um, we were going to get our permits sort of uh, in pieces or in terms of our project timeline. But the city was feeling very uncomfortable because it is a beloved building and it's a new concept that they, I think, ultimately they wanted to see the entire project information before they're comfortable permitting even parts of it so that really kind of blew up you know our plan set we had to add like 30 40 pages into it and then now they have to look at everything brand new fresh again because there's so much new information and that really delayed the approval process so now we're finally at a place where you know everything Everything approved, everything signed off. Um, they're kind of checking a couple other things because a lot of times you have to coordinate between city jurisdiction and county jurisdiction. So they just wanted to make sure the fire department plans are, or the fire department signed off and um, the sewer plan, the county's okay with the sewer plan. And then once they they have the signatures, they we can crank. Yeah, super exciting. 
I can't wait to actually go there to hang out with you at your uh, at your new development project. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. You know, I, I'm uh, I I joke, but I think I'm actually pretty serious to do my meetup there. <laughs> yeah, I'll be down if you have. I mean, you're gonna move to LA, right? That's the plan. Yeah, we're planning to move to LA. You know, with um, all the projects that we got going on, and uh, for a personal reason too. I think I which it just makes sense both personally, personally and professionally. Um, so that we can keep growing down in LA. Yeah, I'll come to the hangout. So if you can go back in time and like tell yourself some advice, say 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, goodbye. Uh, no, I think, you know, to be honest, there's not much what I would, there's not much I would do differently. And I'm not trying to get into one of these like, Brent Stark, Game of Thrones moment, like you are where you're, where you are supposed to be kind of thing. I think looking back, I did a lot of things right. And then things that don't go right, that's sort of par for the course of nature of the beast sort of thing. The only thing I would do differently is probably, but I, you know, I don't have any control over it. It's, I think it's similar to advice startups get here in the Bay Area in the Silicon Valley is to fire quickly. You know, you, you always go in with the best intentions and you trust and verify everything people are saying to you. But, you know, people sometimes um, puff a little bit or they, they, you know, some people talk a good game, but they can't execute. So in those cases, you know, you need to prepare to move on to plan B and plan C. Um, like I've shared with you and other folks, like sometimes it's normal. You, you will kiss a few frogs, but you got to move on, um, and, uh, keep progressing. So really spending the time to vet the consultants or the teams that you're putting in place, ask for referrals and, you know, ask them about not just how great they are, but, you know, tell me about a time when things didn't go well and what did you do with it? I mean, it's like you said before with the whole agent thing. How like it's hard to, I guess you, you kind of want to save face to save your relationship, right? I, I totally, I totally understand what you're saying, man. It's, it's pretty nuts. Business is relational, and so is, especially in real estate. And I, I can't say this about everybody. I know there are times where, I mean, ultimately, regardless, it's in development or whatever. There's a quote by Zig Ziglar, Zig Ziglar right? I might not say it verbatim, but it's about. You'll get everything you want in life if you help enough people to get what they want. And that's ultimately what I'm looking to do is to help other individuals, help the community, help the investors. And sometimes I I come up short too. And, you know, it's not from lack of trying or lack of effort. And in those cases, or sometimes somebody asks for my help and I'm not the best person for it, right? But I'll give it, I've, I've told them, like, I'll give it a shot. But if it doesn't work out, I hope you won't take it personally. And you can definitely fire me. I won't take it personally. I can't say that everybody else is like that where, I don't know. I mean, some people are just a little bit too sensitive in my opinion or, you know, they, they turn very passive aggressive. But ultimately, it's about getting the job done. And, you know, if you ask Bill Belichick, you probably just say the same, right? Like, do your job. If you can't do your job, sorry, you're cut from the team. Yep, very well said. So how can people keep in contact with you? Yeah, they can reach me. I'll give my phone number. I grew up in Austin's area code 512-680-9184. Or they can reach me by email as well. My personal email is jason, J-A-S-O-N, dot the letter C, as in Charlie, 
dot my last name is spell weird h s i a o at gmail.com awesome well thank you so much for your advice today thanks a lot take care yeah thanks sean keep crushing it bye here are some of the key takeaways from this episode it's better to ask the dumb questions now find resources go to the city planning department and learn in this business you may kiss a few frogs so don't be afraid be a little tough and focus on getting the job done you can find the show notes on our site everythingrei.com i hope you all learned a lot Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.